The church where we are celebrating the Divine Liturgy was built just after the turn of the last century to serve the Bohemian Catholic immigrants of Bridgeport. The total cost to build this church back then was $100,000. Sounds like a bargain uh, to us until you consider that $1 in 1908 was worth about $26 in today's money. Um, I'll let you figure the math out on your nifty pocket calculator. The church was built uh, in what is called the Neo-Gothic style, 19th century revival of medieval Gothic churches and cathedrals in Europe. It's said that Gothic architecture was invented by Abbot Suget of the Abbey of Saint-Denis, just outside of Paris in the mid-12th century, but it very quickly spread throughout Europe during the Age of Faith. Gothic cathedrals and abbeys were famous for their high ceilings and ribbed vaults, as you can see above us, pointed arches, and enormous stained glass windows. The medievals were obsessed by light, probably because it was the Dark Ages. You can see all these characteristics in this church this morning. The Gothic style began in France, but one of the largest Gothic churches in Europe is not Chart Cathedral Notre Dame of de, Par de Paris or the Cathedral of Amiens, to name just a few. All of them are enormous piles of stone and glass on the outside and filled with a sense of light and space and color on the inside. But the largest Gothic church is located in Germany, as the Germans will proudly tell you when you visit Cologne Cathedral. It's Germany's most visited landmark, drawing up to 20,000 people a day. Now, this is not a lecture on ecclesiastical architecture, so there will be no test at the end of Mass this morning. I'm telling you this because the Cathedral of Cologne has something to do with today's Feast of the Epiphany. It was The cathedral was begun in the year 1248 to house the relics of the three kings. There is a popular tradition that says that St. Helena, the mother of the Emperor Constantine, and probably one of the greatest relic hunters of all time, discovered their relics and brought them to Constantinople in the 4th century. The Italians stole them from the Byzantines, and brought them to Milan in the 6th or 7th century. And in the 12th century, the Holy Roman Emperor Frederick Barbarossa stole them from the Italians and gave them to the Germans, and who have held on to them ever since. Their well-traveled bones rest in a large, gilded, triple sarcophagus placed above and behind the high altar of Cologne Cathedral. And on this one day only, one day a year, the sarcophagus is open to public viewing, so the thousands of people can pass by behind the high altar and peek into that casket and see the crowned heads of those three kings. Uh, who were these magi and where did they come from? The story is really only found in St. Matthew's Gospel. He doesn't tell us their names or even how many they were, but the 9th century Italian manuscript says that their names were Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar. The idea that they were kings 
comes from the Church's Lexio on the mystery of the Incarnation, especially Psalm 71, 72. The kings of Tarshish and the isles shall offer gifts. The kings of Arabia and Sheba shall bring tribute. And Isaiah 60, caravans of camels shall fill you. All from Sheba shall come bearing gold and frankincense. These texts probably drew the attention of the early church, especially in her liturgy, because they sounded like Matthew's account. It's a good example of the important principle of allowing the liturgy to interpret scripture. If we do that, then Epiphany gives us a new and surprising twist to the readings that we've been listening to since the beginning of Advent. In those passages, the prophets foretold the coming of a Messiah who would save his people. It's curious that when we listen to these texts, the question that we never think to ask is, save them from what? Or really, more importantly, from whom? And the answer is from the goyim, from the Gentiles, like the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Syrians, the Greeks, the Romans, who all marched through Israel as conquerors. The point is that it was a Jewish Messiah come to save the Jewish people. Gentiles need not apply. Israel, called to be salt and light to the nations, turned its light back in upon itself because of its Gentile pagan oppressors, as the saying goes, once burnt, twice shy. And in a surprising and totally unforeseen turn of things, this sense of an us versus a them, the people of the promise, Israel, versus the people of the curse, the pagans, changed with the incarnation of Christ so that now we Gentiles gather together with, uh, gathered together with Israel are privileged to share in the promises made to Abraham. This is what we are really celebrating on the Feast of the Epiphany. For St. Matthew, the Magi are the first fruits of the ingathering of the Gentile nations, the Europeans, the Africans, the Asians, the indigenous peoples of Oceania and the Americas, all of our ancestors, all those who have come to faith in Israel's Messiah. This feast, this feast means that we don't have to be born a Jew in first century Israel to qualify for the right to be reconciled with God. And if the ministry of Christ among prostitutes and tax collectors is any indication, you certainly didn't have to be morally upright to qualify either. Salvation is God's gift to all people everywhere and at all times for those who receive it with repentant hearts, underline repentant. All this is symbolized by the visit of the Magi, who are the centerpiece of the Gospel of the Epiphany. So today, wherever people are gathered to worship Christ on Epiphany, in Gothic cathedrals, in Romanesque basilicas, parish churches, or monastic oratories, we are doing so as Gentile nations brought into Israel's faith in its redeeming and saving Messiah. And we might not bring gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but we can bring the only gift that he really wants, that of our whole selves given lovingly to him.